So, hey, today we are kicking off a series from now until Easter as we go through Lent, which begin on Wednesday, February the 17th. I was excited to see the Bible reading plans that have come out as we begin, as we move toward Easter, as we begin to look at the cross. And for each week, we're going to be talking about the cross because the cross of Jesus Christ, it addresses multiple dimensions of our lives. And what we learn as we study the Bible is that the cross provides answers to some of our biggest problems. For example, problems of emptiness or problems of self-worth. It provides answers to problems of bitterness and suffering. And so what we want to do is each week we want to look at the ripple effect, if you will, of the effect that the cross can have on the life of a person to deal with these major needs in a person's life. By the way, this is a great time to invite your friends to church leading up to Easter because we're going to deal with some felt needs that exist in the life of every human being. Everybody can relate to spiritual emptiness. Everybody can relate to issues of self-worth. Everybody deals with guilt and, or suffering. And so we, we just encourage you to invite your friends in this season because you can be sure it's going to be a time where we'll be speaking to things that will be very, very helpful for them. Now, today as we kick off this series, I want to talk to you from God's word about freedom. And I want to talk to you about the freedom that the cross brings into the life of a person and I'm going to read from Galatians chapter 5 and Galatians chapter 6. Paul is writing here, and I want for you to see this as it comes up on the screen, or maybe you have your notes all printed. But uh, take a look at this scripture, beginning in chapter 5. Paul says, I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty, whoever he may be. Brothers, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I being persecuted? Now, let me just stop there for just a minute. I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking circumcision. What the heck is Pastor Shane talking about here today? And I just ask for you to bear with me. Because don't forget, in ancient Jewish religion, circumcision was symbolic and embodied the quality of moral goodness that a person has before God. It meant rightness, and it really meant two things. Circumcision first meant for the people of Israel that they were God's chosen or favored people, that they had been set apart by God. Second, circumcision meant that you were striving or working toward holiness. You were working on a very strict moral religious code. It was symbolic that you were God's people. And for most Israelites in ancient Judaism, they believed that circumcision was one of the things that actually made you right with God. It was a symbol that embodied, you see this all through history, it was a symbol that embodied keeping the law of God. Now, Today, most of us don't measure our moral goodness by whether or not we've been circumcised. In fact, I hope that you don't even remember it happening. <laughs> but today, we do have traditions that help us to feel better about our relationship with God. We do have traditions that help us to feel more secure 
about a relationship with God that gives you that sense that God is pleased with you. And depending upon your background, those traditions may vary, whether it's, you know, you were baptized as an infant or you receive communion or uh, you go to church regularly. There are things that you do that cause you to think, okay, I'm, I'm living right with God. These are the things that make you at least feel or appear to be religious. Now, I want for you to think for just a minute as you're watching this here today. What is that thing that you do that when you do it, you feel right with God? Now, keeping that in mind, as you think on that, I want to go back and look at what Paul's saying about circumcision. Look at what he says. He says, brothers, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. Now, that's interesting phrasing there. Notice that. He says, if I'm still preaching circumcision, remember this, the offense of the cross has been abolished. He goes on. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Now, you know what that means. But notice this. He says, you, my brothers... We're called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge your sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. And then notice in chapter 6, starting at verse 14, he says, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Notice this. He says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision actually mean anything. What counts is new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, even to the people of God, the Israel of God. Now, Again, we're talking about freedom, and you know and I know that freedom has been a big topic in recent months, and uh, what I want to say to you here, I guess at the beginning of today's teaching, is that the cross gives probably the most nuanced and sophisticated answer to what freedom is than you will ever find. It gives the most sophisticated and nuanced answer to the problem of freedom that you're ever going to hear. And so today we're going to look at what that means. And of course the question is, at the very beginning, is how do you define freedom? I looked it up in the dictionary. And the dictionary would say that freedom is the power to, or, or right to act or speak or think as one wants to. It's self-determination without limits. Of course, when you think about freedom, you think, well, what is the opposite of freedom? The opposite of freedom, of course, is slavery. And so you've seen definitions, especially in America, when you talk to people about freedom, they, they would define it as, well, never having to sacrifice what you want because someone on the outside is forcing you to. Now, these days, especially in California, people have been confronted with this. What does freedom mean? And people have been debating this. And there's been a tension and people are trying to figure this out. But I want to say to you today as you're watching this that there is, a, there is a problem with this definition. And the problem is it doesn't work out very well in real life. Let me give you an example. 
I was reading about a French novelist by the name of uh, Francois Sagan. In fact, you'll see her picture coming up on the screen. And Francois Sagan, uh, she was a novelist that used to always preach about freedom and talk about freedom. And uh, she really believed in free sex and free love and live any way you want. And, and, uh, and, and she wrote, a lot of her novels had to do with the freedom of the human being. And she was a humanist. And she was interviewed years ago when she turned 50. Of course, again, obsessed with freedom. And the interviewer said, the interviewer asked her, because she said, freedom is getting to do whatever you want to do. And so the interviewer asked her, she said, have you had the freedom that you've always wanted? And she thought about it for a minute. And then she said, well, yes, yes, I guess I have. Of course, you're not free when you're in love, she said. But fortunately, she said, you can't be in love all the time. So apart from when I'm in love, yeah, I've been free. Now, that's interesting. Because do you see what she means? And you see the problem. What she was saying is, and rightfully so, if somebody says that they love you, but they're not willing to sacrifice their desires for you, then you know they don't really love you. If somebody says that they love you and they're not willing to sacrifice something they want for you, then in spite of what they say, you know that they don't love you. And so if the definition of freedom is being able to do whatever you want to do without sacrifice, then she's absolutely right. You can't love without sacrifice. And so when I say that the Bible gives the very best answer, the most sophisticated answer, the wisest, the most brilliant answer to the problem of freedom, I mean what I'm saying. Because the Bible gives a definition of freedom that's unique, and it answers the problem that plagues us in our life. And so, now, Paul's book to Galatians, which is what we're reading from, it is the number one book in the whole Bible on the topic of freedom. In fact, uh, I'd encourage you because of the big debate about freedom in America, if you're interested in studying freedom, you just read the book of Galatians. Because in the book of Galatians, notice, Paul says, you, my brothers and sisters, you were called to be free. Now, what's he talking about? Let me give you some background to this whole text. He was talking about a group of people that he called the circumcision party. Isn't that an interesting name, the circumcision party? And the circumcision party, were, they were coming in and they were trying to limit the Galatians' freedom. These were a group of people that came in after Paul and Paul planted the Galatian church and uh, he had started it. And, uh, and uh, I'm not going to this slide. You can take that off the screen for me. But uh, he's talking to this circumcision party, and they're trying to limit the Galatians' freedom. And, and they had come in after Paul. He planted the church again. He started it. But after he left, these other teachers came in, and these other teachers completely threw them into confusion. Now, he called these people the circumcision party because they taught the people that the entire set of regulations laws and circumcision was necessary for you to be saved. If you were going to be accepted by God, you had to keep all of the Old Testament law. And Paul looked at him and said, no way. Paul said, that's wrong. In fact, you can summarize the difference in their positions like this. Now we can go back to that slide. If you just look at this very first one, the circumcision party said this. 
Here are the steps to get accepted by God. First, you believe in Christ. Then you obey the law. And then you'll be accepted by God. Paul says, no, that's not true. In fact, you look at the difference. Paul says the gospel is this. You believe in Christ. You'll be accepted by God. And then you'll obey the law. Now, you can see the difference here in these radical approaches. Paul's saying these are, the order of these things are completely turned around. In fact, Paul goes on to say that, that the other approach, the circumcision party approach, is just completely wrong. And he says, in fact, Paul's writing and he says, if you follow what the circumcision party says here, if you think it's this, this, and this, he says, you've lost the gospel. Because that's not how it works. And he says, you've lost your approach to freedom. So what I want to do in our remaining time is I just want to share with you what Paul lays out is really the road to freedom. How do I as a human being have freedom and keep freedom? And it's really just a two-point message today that I'm going to make, but I'm going to walk you through it. And if you do these two things, you're going to find that you'll be free because this is really how the Christian life works. And this is how the cross begins to change everything in your life. So, if you're at home, are you ready? Let me show you this. If you've got your notes, just write this down. Number one, here's the first thing you've got to do to get on the road to freedom. Number one, write this down. First, you have to let the cross offend you. Write that down. You let the cross offend you. Now, here's why. Do you know why the circumcision party believed what it is that they did? Why, why did the circumcision party teach what they did? I mean, when Paul talks about the offense of the cross, and he's talking about the offense of it, you can see in that scripture there. Well, why does he talk about that? It's because the circumcision party was trying to find a way to get out from under the cross's offensiveness. They were trying to get out from under what the cross really teaches. Of course, it leads to the question, well, what's so offensive about what the cross teaches? What is it that offended the circumcision party? And it's a good question. Let me just delineate it here, for example. Paul says somewhere else, in fact, he's writing to the Corinthians. If you just take a look at this, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says this about the cross. He says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then he says something that is just packed with insight. He says, Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Greeks or Gentiles. So why are the Jews offended? I mean, Paul's answering it right here. He says, Jews are offended because the Jews demand a miraculous sign. The Jews demand power. They want to see power. Why are the Greeks offended? The Greeks are offended because the Greeks are looking for wisdom. In other words, some people are offended one way. Other people are offended another way. But what we're going to look at today is that nothing's really changed People today are offended for the same reasons. For example, let's start with wisdom. Some people, like the Greeks, are offended by the cross because they think the cross violates the world's wisdom. 
In other words, people today, intellectuals will ask, for example, uh, how could the cross possibly solve all the world's problems? And, and, and they, they even will go so far as to say the idea of Jesus' sacrifice is obscene. I think of the famous atheist, and I've, I've read several of his books, and I've watched him in several debates, uh, the famous atheist, uh, Christopher Hitchens. And he said, for example, about the cross, he said, the teachings of Christianity are immoral. And then he says, the central one and the most immoral of all is that one of vicarious redemption, which is a reference to the cross and Christ's blood spilt on the cross. He says, it is the most immoral of all. He said, you can throw your sins onto somebody else. That idea is vulgarity and it's known as scapegoating. Or I think of that other famous atheist that wrote The God Delusion by the name of Richard Dawkins who said, the central doctrine of Christianity, that atonement for original sin, he says, this teaching which lies at the heart of the New Testament theology is almost as morally obnoxious as anything else. He says, it is vicious, sadomasochistic, uh, uh, and repellent. And he said, we should dismiss it as barking mad. Now, these guys, they are just like the Greeks in Paul's day. Now, what should be noted about people today and people back then in Paul's day is they don't hate the idea of Jesus Jesus is a wise man or Jesus is a teacher. They're all good with that. But as soon as you start talking about the cross or as soon as you start talking about the need of Jesus to die for sin, that's offensive. Do you know why? What is it that is so offensive about the cross? It's because the world looks and says, look, the problem with the world today is wisdom. That's what they think. And God says, no, that's not the problem. The problem isn't wisdom. The problem is, if you just write this down, that every human being has a wicked heart. That's the problem. And that's offensive. Because the cross says the problem is you. Hey, people really do struggle with this. In fact, do you remember that story um, where Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross. It's found in Luke chapter 22. And it says he's, he's praying and he's getting ready to go to the cross. And it says he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them. And he knelt down and he prayed, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. Now, what's interesting here is the reference to the cup. Because the cup is a reference to the wrath of God. And by Jesus praying this prayer, what it means is, is that there's something that is deserving of God's wrath. That Jesus is going to have to go to the cross because human beings have done something that is worthy of the very wrath of God. Now, if you talk to intellectuals today, the Greeks looking for wisdom, they say, oh, that's offensive. In fact, Paul would put it this way, talking about deserving of wrath. He would say, as it is written in Romans 3, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have altogether become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. 
The poison of vipers is on their lips and their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. He's talking about you. He's talking about me. He says, our feet is swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery marks our ways and the way of peace we do not know. This is an indictment on humanity. He says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, see, the reason I say the cross is offensive is because the cross is a symbol of my guilt. The cross is a symbol of your guilt. That's interesting. When I talk to intellectuals today about the problems in the world or the problem of freedom, for example, and you know, people talk about America's problems and how, how are we going to solve America's problems, one of, the prob- one of the issues, I think, is that people who think that it's going to be solved through wisdom, like the Greeks, the Greeks want wisdom, you know, you just look at, you think about these problems, you just look at the great debates in politics in recent years. For example, is capitalism the right system, economic system for a country, or is socialism the right system? Because there's a growing socialism movement in the U.S., as you know, especially among younger kids. And all the supporters, for, supporters, for example, of Bernie Sanders and liberal wisdom. So what's better? Is capitalism better or socialism better? Or is there some sort of compound in between? Now, you know what the answer is. The cross says you're not going to find the answer in wisdom. See, intellectuals, they just say, well, if we could just get a plan, if we could just get the right philosophy, if we could just get the right person in office, then we'd be okay. But the cross says that's not the problem. And friends, I'm just going to say to you right now, listen, if the human heart wasn't selfish, if the human heart wasn't full of self-interest, if the human heart never exploited anybody else, then frankly, it wouldn't matter what the system is. It would work fine. And by the way, I'm not saying that one system is as good as another, but I am saying the cross says the problem is not our wisdom. The problem is not the system. Now guys, do you realize? Again, the very presence of the Son of God having to come to earth is an indictment on every one of us. And it's offensive, of course, to the Greeks. But they're not the only ones offended. Because Paul says, boy, the Greeks, they look for wisdom. But Paul says, notice, the Jews demand miraculous signs. In other words, what does that mean? It means the Jews want power. The Jews want deliverance from evil. Now, the Jews really represent another kind of person in the world today. In fact, I'd probably say the Jews represent the average person in the world today, not necessarily the intellectuals. You know, the average person, they may not think as deeply about the systems or the wisdom or the philosophies. In fact, the average person is probably pretty cynical about intellectuals. But here's what the average person believes. The average person believes that some people are good and some people are bad. The average person says some people are good, some people are bad, but here's the key. You have to work hard. You have to be a good father. 
You have to be a good mother. You have to keep your nose clean. And the average person says, if you ask them, you say, what's wrong with the world? The average person is going to say, I'll tell you what's wrong with the world. The problem is, is that there's all these bad people out there. These people who are criminals, these violent people. And if we could just get rid of them, that's the problem. And to them, what Paul's writing is, the cross is foolishness to them too. You know why? Write this down. Because if you understand the cross, the cross is actually saying, you're no better than they are. You're no better than anybody else. In fact, the cross says that there's no difference between the good and the bad. Jesus had to die for all. In fact, Paul puts it great in Romans chapter 3, notice, when he says, what shall we conclude then? Are we as Jews any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles are like, are all under sin. There's no difference. And the cross says, that terrible person that you imagine, if we could just get rid of the criminals, if we could just get rid of the bad people, we'd all be okay. God looks at you and says, you're no different than they are. Let me just see if I could just illustrate this for you for just a minute. Let's take three people, for example, just simple illustration. Let's take three people, and let's take them out to Morro Bay. If you just take a look at this illustration coming up here on the screen, let's just take them out to Morro Bay, and let's tell them to swim to Hawaii. Of course, that's a long way. 2,400 miles, right? But you take these three people, and they're three different kinds of swimmers. You'll see here, you've got a beginner swimmer, right? You've got an average swimmer, and then you've got an Olympic swim, swimmer. Now, I'm saying to you right now, it doesn't matter. And you look at those three swimmers and look at the differences in how they can swim. I mean, you've got the average swimmer, and the average swimmer, he may make it zero. He may not go very far. But the average swimmer, man, he may make it seven miles. The Olympic swimmer, he may make it 100 miles. But in the end, they're all dead. They all need a boat. And so what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 3, when he says, what are we going to conclude then? Are we any better? He says, not at all. The Jews and the Gentiles alike, they're the same. Now, I'm telling you something. The average person says, that's offensive. The average person would look at me. Maybe you're looking at me today and saying, don't include me with them. I'm not like that. I'm not like criminals. I'm not like the violent. You're telling me that I'm like that murderer on death row? You're telling me that I'm like Hitler? They say, I want nothing to do with this religion. Nothing. But yes, I'm telling you that the cross is saying, don't you see? We're all the same. And by knowing this, I'm just going to say to you right now, the cross offends everybody. Listen to me. The cross doesn't just offend the intellectuals. The cross offends the average person. The cross doesn't just offend the pagans. The cross offends the prudes. The cross doesn't just offend the left. The cross offends the right. Because Paul says, for there's no difference. Now, why do I point all this out? You say, Shane, I thought this was, talk was on freedom. Well, let's go back to freedom. Because this is the point. Paul says, if you want to be free, you first have to see the offensiveness of the cross. Why? 
Because again, the circumcision party, they tried to take away the offensiveness of the cross. How? The circumcision party, what would they say? They'd say, oh yes, we believe in Jesus. Yes, that's true. But also, you better follow the Jewish law too. Paul says, no. Paul says, don't you see? It's not Jesus plus anything. It's not Jesus and follow the law. It's just Jesus. And Paul says, the moment you do that, the moment you move the offensiveness of the cross, that it's not at all about you, the moment you do that, he says, you're in trouble. You've got to be very careful that you understand this. Paul says, it's not, it's not about Jewish law. It's not about keeping your moralisms. It's just the cross. Otherwise, you've lost what it means entirely. That's why Paul says, notice here, he says, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And notice he says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new life. Now, that leads to the second point that I'm gonna make here. I said two points. The first thing you have to, deal, have to do if you really want freedom in your life is you have to first of all get in touch with the offense of the cross. You have to understand what the cross really means. And then number two, write this down. You have to learn to boast in the cross. Because once you've realized the offensiveness, once you accept that message and you receive it, then you can begin to boast in it. Now, I just want to stop here for just a minute and I want to kind of hinge between these two points because I want to show you how the cross stands in total judgment of every human being that has ever lived. And we're going to revisit this idea, but I guess this is the thing that I'd have you write down if you would. No human being can stay neutral at the foot of the cross. Nobody can stay neutral. The only way that you can stay neutral at the foot of the cross is if you just don't understand it. That's what Paul is saying. Because Paul's saying, look, you're either going to be offended by it or you're going to learn to glory in it. And if you learn to glory in it, it'll become the transforming center of your entire universe. But he says nothing in between is possible. Why? Because its message is so radical. And sometimes when I try and explain this to people, people say, hmm, well, that's interesting because that's not true of me. You might be watching this and you'd say to me, you know, the cross hasn't really changed my life, but I'm not offended by it. And I guess what I just say to you is, if that's really true, then it can only mean that you don't really get it. You don't really get yet what the cross really means. And that can happen. By the way, that can happen even for a religious person. Gosh, you think, you think about Peter. Peter thought that he was serving Christ. In fact, if you go through the first half of the book of Matthew, it's fascinating because Peter thought that he knew what it was to serve Jesus. And then you get to about chapter 16 in the book of Matthew and look at what it says. It says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he taught them that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now, what happens to Peter here? Peter gets offended. Peter rebukes Jesus. 
It says in verse 22 that Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This can never happen to you. Why? Because the whole idea offends Peter. But notice, Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're actually a stumbling block to me because you do not have in mind the things of God, but you have in mind the things of men. And by the way, I'm just going to say, it's always the things of men. It's always human concerns that will keep you from understanding the cross and coming to terms with it. On the one hand, I want to say good for Peter because at least he's halfway there. He's offended by the cross, but he has to come the whole way and realize you have to embrace the offense. But again, this is an interesting line. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. What are the human concerns that keep you from seeing the cross? There are all sorts of them. Could be your ego. It could be fear. It could be your false expectations of God, that he's not the God that you think he should be. Again, it could be your pride. Point is, Peter's offended. But he's got to learn to boast in the cross. So what does it mean to boast in the cross? That's the question. What does it mean to boast? First, it means this, if you just write this down. It means you've got to admit, I cannot save myself. It doesn't matter if I keep a moral religious law. It doesn't matter what I've done. It doesn't matter what I haven't done. It doesn't matter if I'm circumcised. It doesn't matter if I'm uncircumcised. The fact is, I am totally dependent on God. And that really leads to the next thing, if you just write this down. It means that I'm willing to receive the free handout of amazing grace. It means that I'm willing to receive the free handout of amazing grace. And what happens is, is that you start to actually boast in your need of Jesus. You start to say, you know, there's nothing I could have done. I'm a sinner. And all of a sudden, your entire relationship with God is turned upside down because you realize it's not because of anything you could do or would do or should do. It's only by his grace. Ephesians chapter 2 says, for it is by grace that you and I have been saved. It's through our trust, our faith, and it's not from ourselves, but it is the gift of God. It certainly is not of works so that I can't boast, and neither can you. What is Paul telling us here? You know what he's saying? Paul is saying, do you know how you can tell what a real Christian is? Do you know how you can tell what a real Christian is? A real Christian isn't somebody that just enjoys the cross. A real Christian isn't somebody that just finds the cross inspiring or wears it around his neck. No. A real Christian boasts in the cross. A real Christian says there is no good in me and I am broken. And my only hope is found in Jesus. Paul would put it this way because he learned how to do this. He says, you know, I once thought my moral living was valuable. He said, I was a teacher of teachers. I kept the law. He says, I once thought this was valuable, but now I consider it worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared to the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Notice this. 
Paul says, for his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, as rubbish, so that I could gain Christ. Notice one doesn't happen without the other. In order to gain Christ, we count everything else as worthless. Anything else that you would depend on for your salvation, your good works, your moralisms, your religion, your, your tithes, you're trying to work it all out in and of yourself. He says, I count it all as loss. In fact, he says, I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through trust in Christ. For this is God's way of making us right with himself. It depends upon faith. Look, when Paul says, but God forbid that I should glory in anything except the cross of Christ, what he's saying is, you've got to get this. He's saying there is nothing else that he is as obsessed with. There's nothing else that is his source of meaning. He says the cross is the fountain of everything that he is, everything that he's become, everything that he's hoped for. And this is what he's trying to say to the Galatians. He says, look, it's not Jesus and something. He says, if you make anything else the thing that you boast in, listen to me, friend, listen. Let's go back to freedom. Think about what you boast in. That thing that gives you power. That thing that gives you your hope. That thing that gives you your confidence. Paul is saying, if you hope in anything else, you're not free. Why? Why aren't you free? Because Paul knows something. Here's the secret. Paul understands that anything else that you hope in, what are you going to do when it falls apart? Because it will. You may be watching this today and it's like, I kind of boast in my figure. <laughs> I kind of boast in the way I look. Well, what are you going to do when that falls apart? Some of you say, well, I boast in my relationship. Well, what do you do when that goes sour? Well, I boast in my job. Okay, but what do you do when it's over? Do you see what Paul's saying? Paul's saying, if you make anything else the center of you, your universe... Pastor Kyle talked about this when he talked about what worship is. One of the five purposes of the church. If there's anything else that you worship, he says eventually it's going to fall apart. He says what you've got to boast in alone is what Jesus has done for you in the cross. That we all need a boat. Somebody said, well, you know, religion is just a crutch for the weak. You know what? That's true. <laughs> but boasting in the cross is about boasting in the fact that you're weak and that you need a crutch. And a crutch is okay, by the way, if you need one. In fact, you're wise if you'd use it. Now, how do you boast in the cross? Let me give you these things, then we'll be done. Number one, how do you boast in it? Number one, you learn to boast in the cross intellectually. If you just write that down. You boast in it intellectually. In other words, a Christian is somebody who goes crazy just just thinking about the cross and what it's done for them. You know, this week I was thinking, for example, of John Muir. And here's a beautiful picture of John Muir, if you remember who he is. He was obsessed over the mountains for years. He loved trails. He loved mountains. He gloried in the mountains. He'd climb them. He mastered them. <laughs> he gazed at them. He took pictures of them. Why? 
he boasted intellectually in them. You know what it means to boast in the cross? The Christian goes intellectually crazy when he looks at the cross because he can see the cross and he could say, look, if it wasn't for the wisdom of the cross, he says, I would either have a God who overlooked evil and a God who didn't believe in justice or I'd have a God who had absolute standards and was absolutely harsh and crushed people. But you see, on the cross, God's love and his holiness brilliantly come together and at the cross his justice and his love are both fully satisfied at the same time and the Christian goes berserk just thinking about the brilliance of that how great it is how unbelievable it is you boast intellectually how else do you boast in the cross write this down you boast personally you boast personally now, let me just show you exactly how this happens. Give you a practical example here. And, I, and I, just follow me on this. Because when you learn to boast in the cross, I, I guess I'd just say it this way. When you learn to boast in the cross, it's not that your problems are over. But I will say, when you learn to boast in the cross, your problems get under control. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, I want you to think about it this way. What is it that gets you really scared? What is it that you're really afraid of? What is it that makes you really depressed or gets you really angry? Now, whenever you think about those things, what I want for you to do is I want for you to ask yourself something and then tell yourself something. First, I want you to ask yourself, again, what is it that I'm so afraid of losing? See, that's why you're afraid. That's why you're angry. That's why you're depressed. What is it that you're so afraid of losing? What is it that you're boasting in that is so important to you that if you lose it, you've lost everything? See, Paul says, God forbid that I should boast in anything but the cross. And when you're able to do that, you're able to say, okay, okay. My world's not gonna fall apart if I lose that because I still have Jesus. My life's not going to fall apart if I lose this because I boast. God forbid that I should boast in anything. So I say, ask yourself something. What is it you're really afraid of losing? And then you say to yourself, God forbid that I should boast in this, in anything except the cross. That's what made Paul so free is because he was able to do that. And you boast in it personally. By the way, I just want to mention before we're done, when we talk about boasting in the cross personally because you know the difference Jesus has made in your life, I just want to encourage you as we go through this series, we're going to deal with all sorts of needs, as I already said, needs of guilt, needs of self-esteem, needs of suffering. Uh, there are all sorts of needs that we have. As we do, I just encourage you to invite a friend. Invite somebody to church. You can do that on social media. We also have cards that we've put together that you can give to somebody. Uh, they will be at our live services. You can pick those up at the office. But just want to encourage you to, to just say, especially during this season of Lent, especially if you know somebody that recognizes Lent or celebrates Lent, that you just say, you know, man, this church is teaching on the cross every single week. I'd encourage you to pass that along to them. Why? Because you boast in it personally because you boast in it intellectually and then this final one if you just write this down you boast in the cross relationally meaning 
you begin to share in your life the difference that Jesus has made for you. In fact, I love uh, what Pastor Andrew did uh, just last week, and he passed out these little cards that we're going to use all year long, asking you the question, who's the one person that you're going to boast about the cross to? Who's your one person that you're going to communicate the cross to this year? And that he, I, I, he, he and Alyssa just challenged you to begin praying about this and thinking about this. Who's your one Because you know that the cross has sunk so deeply into your heart that you're saying, I gotta tell somebody and I gotta invite them to do it. Well, friends, I pray you'd do that. I pray that first of all, you'd come to terms with the offense of the cross and what the cross really means. And then you'd learn to boast in it and allow that to provide you with a freedom that says, I'm accepted by God, not because of anything I've done, but only because of who he is and what he's done. Let's pray. Father, would you just work that truth within us that we would boast in you and in you alone? And that Jesus, as we come face to face with the cross and what it is that you've done in the book of Galatians and what Paul is writing out, help us to internalize these truths that Jesus, it's only found in you. You're the one that makes the difference. Guide us and lead us, direct us. Help us, Jesus, as we yield to you and turn to you in every way. And we give you praise and we give you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.